Just feel the presence of God. It's just, uh, there's a, Bible talks about an unction of God, uh, an oil, almost a covering of God. And that just felt like that today. It was just amazing. And I think hope, I think what's always amazing is that uh, when God just marries up the worship and the talk, and I think hopefully we'll find that uh, you'll be able to draw out of, uh, of some of those themes in what I'm going to say. Some things, by their very name, conjure up a bad image. How much would you like to be a patient at this place? <laughs> Death Valley Health Center. Just queue right up. Or how about this form of travel? Zeppelin airship. Especially if it was, you know, this one was called the Hindenburg. Would you be front of the queue, ready to take the maiden flight? Or maybe if you were trying to look after someone who was trying to apply for a job, who said his last job was at Lehman Brothers. You know, you're likely to, you know, think, oh, this is a trustworthy guy who I can really depend on. Reputations can precede you. And they can be a bit like that with Bible characters, can't it? I mean, how many people call their child, their son, Judas? I must admit, when we're picking names for Nathan, Judas wasn't one of them. Um, you know, bad reps. But actually, sometimes we can be a bit surprised about what happens. It can be a little bit unexpected, like this poor van driver. Sometimes when you think you've got everything sussed and you, re- you think, do you know what? I really know what's going to happen here. Apparently, absolutely nothing. On the way to get to absolutely nothing, there's not a lot that happens either. But sometimes what can happen is something can crop up that completely turns your world upside down. And you decide you have to reevaluate what you thought you knew. And I want to try and do that tonight with someone who I think is a little bit maligned. And that's Martha. Who's heard about the Bible story of Mary and Martha? Who thinks Mary is the heroine of that story? Who thinks Martha is the heroine of the story? It's one, two, two people. All right, fair enough. So what's the story about? Give me a pressy. What's the story of Mary and Martha all about? Yeah, basically, as, as Steph says, Mary's a good girl and she stays in the presence of Jesus and Martha's the bad girl and she gets distracted and cooks up a meal. So actually, nowadays, calling someone a bit of a Martha is an insult, isn't it? It's not really meant as a compliment. But I want to take you through a journey through the Bible, and maybe we can redeem her reputation just a little bit. So let's start at the main story, which is Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. So Jesus is on the road with his disciples. And he comes to Bethany, which is a small village we learn later, about two miles away from Jerusalem. Now, the Bible doesn't make clear how many people were with Jesus on that day. He just dealt with the 72. But my guess is he's got the 12 with him because they tend to follow him just about everywhere. So basically, he turns up at a house with 12 other people. That's 13 people coming to tea. No small number. And we need to think, well, who are Mary and Martha? Well, actually, as we find out later, Mary and Martha live with their brother, 
Lazarus. Now, I don't want to spoil the ending, but he does die. But we, we know they must be well-to-do orphans, not least of which because they can accommodate 13 people turning up on spec. We know later that Mary pours over Jesus a perfume that's worth a year's wages, so they were not poor. We're pretty sure they might be orphaned because it doesn't mention their parents at any stage. The other unusual thing is they appear to be all unmarried. Now, in Jewish custom, most people are married by the age of 20. So it's possible that they're teenagers, or it's possible just that they have yet to be married. But they're likely to be basically young, well-to-do, probably quite intelligent, quite independent people. So Jesus and his disciples were on their way, and they came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. Mary sat and listened. Now that is the usual position of a disciple, which is a bloke's job in those days. Mary's breaking the rules. She's basically gatecrashed the conference and sitting right at the feet of the speaker. But the Bible says Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So now we meet Martha from the Aramaic, which means Martha, the lady, the mistress. And she's living up to her name, isn't she? She's got an important guest staying in a house, and, and the custom was to serve a meal. I think sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes you read the Bible and you just take things at face value, don't you? But let's just look at it through the lens of reality. This is some of the crockery that was used for a, a meal in the first century. And the main meal in that era was the evening meal. So Jesus turns up with his 12 disciples. There's already Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So we're talking about 16 people, at least, possibly some more. And the meal will consist of a lentil stew made with herbs, with cheese, milk, olive, onions, and bread. And then there'd probably be fresh fruit, like melon. There'd be dried fruit like pomegranates and dates and figs. And to drink, there'd be water and wine and probably some curdled milk, which is a bit like sort of a liquid yogurt. Now, Sarah and I like to host people. I ought to tell you, I am a specialist cook. I've specialized in spaghetti bolognese, <laughs> apple crumble, and cheese sauces. So I realized once I mastered those three dishes, I thought, why well, need to move on? So fortunately, Sarah is a very good cook. But I have learned one thing. When I'm hosting, when we're hosting guests, if I just sit in the lounge just chatting away to, my, to these friends and just leave her to it, I'm going to get short shrift fairly soon. Because even if I'm not cooking the meal, there's things to be chopped, there's things to be washed, there's things to be plated up, there's crockery to get out. There's stuff to do. So you can imagine the scene when Jesus turns up with his 12 friends and suddenly there's a big meal going on. And Jesus is talking and talking and, and Mary's just in raptures, just at his feet. While Martha is busy chopping things and rattling things and preparing things. And, and my, my guess is, as, as the time goes by, she starts to chop and rattle a little bit louder. She might drop the odd thing or two just to see if she can like, you know, someone might come in and say, you all right? And then as she's coming in and out with the stuff, I think she's giving Mary the eyes. You know, 
you know, and then before too long, you're getting the gritted teeth chat. You need to come on, come on, come on. You know, and Mary is having none of it. She's just lost in the presence of God. Now, I want to flag up two words the Bible says here. The first word, the NRV, translates as preparations. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations. It's this, the word is diaconia, and it comes from the word meaning service or ministry. In fact, that's where most we get the word deacon from. We don't have deacons at this church, but a lot of churches do have deacons. So the Bible is saying Martha is doing her ministry. She's doing her service. But it adds a second word. And that is perispeo, which means to draw away. Which basically means Martha's doing a service, but she's drawn away. Which is exactly what she's done, isn't it? Jesus is there teaching right in her house. And she's rattling pots and pans. So Martha finally has enough. And she drags Jesus into the fight. There we go. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her to help me. This is where Martha completely drops the ball. Embarrassing her sister in front of guests, and particularly involving an honored guest in a domestic dispute, culturally, is really bad. Martha has completely lost it. So she ends up getting a bit of gentle correction from Jesus. Martha, Martha. The Lord answers, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. There's an absolute truth there, isn't there? Jesus is teaching. God himself is speaking. Mary's registered this, and she signed herself up front and center at the front of the conference. But Martha has completely missed the point. And she's drawn away. She's got it wrong. I've listened to quite a few talks about uh, Mary and Martha. And and several of them have suggested that really what Martha should have done was served up cheese sandwiches. There was no need to put on a feast. It was drawing attention away. She should have just knocked up a bit of food and that would have been that. And actually, I think they were right. Mary had a faith and a love and Martha had a to-do list. She got it wrong. It took too much of her time. It took away from what God was up to. Which takes me to my first point. Your work or your calling can draw you away from God. Martha got too busy. In fact, busyness is almost a badge of honor these days, isn't it? How are you doing? Oh, busy, busy, busy. You know, it's, it's just, just a way of saying, oh, I'm important, I've got lots to do, I'm, I'm here, I'm there, I'm everywhere. I came across this quote and I really like it. As kids, our stock answer to most every question was nothing. What do you do at school today? Nothing. What's new? Nothing. Then somewhere along the way to adulthood, we took a 180 degree turn and we cashed in our nothing for busy. What are you doing? Busy, 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 busy. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a doer. I have, I think I counted five jobs at the moment. I've had six or seven at various times in medicine. And 
God has blessed me. I'm lucky enough to be heavily involved in the healthcare economy in this area. I have um, a say in, in how things are run. I have been given influence, and uh, God is using me. And on top of that, I try and do stuff for the church. I do uh, help with youth. I get involved in heaven and healthcare. And every now and then, when they let me, I get to preach. I can get too busy. I can be tempted to draw away from the presence of God because of all the things I'm interested in, all the things I want to do, all the things I've been called to do. In fact, God does speak to you in those sort of times. And he was talking to me and saying, you're too distracted. You're not having time with me. You're not reading the Bible. I was becoming a Martha. And God will challenge you at that point, even send people to you at that point. Rob Schultz once was chatting to me and he said, you've got to at least find 10 minutes in the day where you're reading your Bible. Just carve out 10 minutes. It was a worthwhile challenge. So I want to share with you something that I've really got into. This, if you get on your phone, not right now, except if you're bored, in which case, whatever. Um, but if you, if you find Bible in one year, this is a brilliant, amazing thing put out by the Alpha team. The Bible is read by David Suchet, and he's just amazing to listen to. And then Nicky Gumbel does a commentary on, on the three passages. It's just astonishing. And I've just really loved getting into that. So if you take one thing away today, get this out and do the Bible in a year. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that's all right. I, I'll never be a workaholic. Five or six jobs, you'll be joking. All I do is my nine to five, and I'm glad to get out, and, and, and I just save myself for all my church stuff. You know, I wouldn't have your issue. Well, actually, it's quite possible to be a churchaholic too. You can actually get so distracted by all the things you do at church, all the ministries you're on, all the, the things you attend, all the meetings you go to. This guy is John Wimber, and I suspect not that many people have recognized him now. He did pass away a little while ago. But John, before he founded the Vineyard Movement, uh, had a highly successful church growth ministry in America. And he used to fly around, all around America, visiting churches and telling them and advising them how to grow their congregations, how to get bigger. And he was much wanted and much needed. And he said, basically, he just got on this treadmill. And he got to the point, really, where the only reason he touched his Bible was because he had to preach at a, at a meeting. And he, he was starting to become ill. He was eating too much. He just got in a bit of a mess. And he just wasn't open to what God was saying. So God started speaking to him. In fact, at one meeting, a rather chagrin guy walked up to him at the end of it and handed him a piece of paper and said, God told me to give you this. So he opened the piece of paper and just said, go home, written on it. But he decided that, you know, he decided to ignore that. So he went on to somewhere else. And the church minister came up and said, there's a lady in the church who says she's got a word for you. And by now he was so distant from God, he thought, oh. And he said, this is going to be some sort of mad single woman who's going to talk to me about, you know, living water or something. He said, I really, I really don't want to meet with her. And the, and the pastor said, no, I really encourage you to do it. This woman is really, really spot on for God. I said, all right, then, fine. And he arranged a time on the last day to meet with her just before his, his, uh, the last main meeting. So he went out to meet with this woman at a designated time. And as he approached her, she started to cry. And he just thought, there you go. I knew it. And as he gets nearer, she starts to sob. And she basically just sits there wailing, sobbing, and moaning. 
And he's just sort of, doesn't quite know what to do. And he's just sort of waiting. And then finally, he's watching the clock. And finally says, lady, you said you had a word for me. I'm come, we're meeting. What's your word from God for me? And she stops crying and said, that was it. That was God's heart for you. And it completely just went through him. The way words wouldn't. He just saw how God felt about where he was up to. He got too busy. He got distracted and drawn away. So your walk, work can drive you away from God. Your church life can draw you away from God. Busyness. Mary had faith and love and Martha had a to-do list. She should have just been making cheese sandwiches. Well, in truth, that's where most talks on Martha end. That's really the, you know, that's, that's the, the main lesson. In fact, I read a book on Mary and Martha, and pretty much each chapter was, find the presence of God and stop doing. I didn't enjoy the book very much, to be honest. It was, <laughs> I found it a bit repetitious, and I didn't like the basic message. <laughs> but let's go back to that word, like... That's my wife giving living testimony to to how little I like the presence and how much I like doing. Let's go back to Diaconia. Martha was undertaking her ministry, her service. And we're going to be clear here that Jesus is not telling her off for trying to serve. In fact, throughout the Gospels, Jesus makes it clear that we're called to serve. And actually to, to to assume he's telling Martha off for doing something would actually be to counteract everything else he teaches. Martha had a ministry of hospitality. And we can see that Jesus loves hospitality. In fact, he loves Bethany. He goes there repeatedly. He likes being there. And I have to ask the question, if all Martha ever did was serve up stale cheese sandwiches, do you think that's the case? Do you think that's where he'd like to go? Because I'm not sure he would. There are people in this church who have amazing gifts of hospitality. And when you get an invite from them, you think, oh, good. This is going to be good. It's going to be good food. It's going to be good wine. It's going to be good company. I'm looking forward to this one. It's in the diary. And it's not just at the home. There are people in Eastgate who try and create an environment where you feel at home in the presence of God. Liz Smallwood and Irene Landu are remarkable people are creating an environment where the presence of God can be felt and enjoyed. They beaver behind the background to get you to a point where you might just savor the presence of God. Karen Wellspring has a motto of never being knowingly undercated. And if, <laughs> and if you've ever served at a conference, you'll find that her food, she keeps the speakers and the, and the conference and the people serving just happy and full. It's an amazing opportunity, amazing gift of hospitality. So there's more to Martha than just whether or not she makes cheese sandwiches. But a long time, for a long time, I thought that's all there is about her. When do you make cheese sandwiches and when do you serve proper food? That's the call. But actually, I recently came to realize that actually the Bible talks quite a lot about other things about Martha. So let's switch Gospels. And go to John 11. 
In John 11, verse 1, it says, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Let's just note there that although the Bible says Jesus loves them all, who gets the name check? It's Martha, the doer, not Mary, the conference goer. Just, just saying. Now let's just jump forward to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard what, that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now you need to understand that death was a common phenomenon in that age, in that era. There's a whole system, there's a whole program in place for what you do when it happens. I didn't realize, but apparently they used to go back after three days to check the person was still dead. Just in case. In case they got it wrong and he'd recovered or she'd recovered. So that's the whole point of the four days thing. Lazarus has now been officially made dead. It's a bit like Monty Python's thing, you know. His metabolic processes are now history. He's off his twig. He's kicked the bucket. He's snuffed it. He's off the mortal coil. Lazarus is dead. It's day four. End of. And actually, there were strict rules about what you do in that circumstance. There's a, there's a Jewish um, custom called Shiva. And after the funeral... The family of the dead person would basically stay in their home barefoot. They wouldn't wash. They wouldn't change their clothes. They wouldn't leave the house. They'd sit on a low bench and people would come to them and serve them and minister to them. But now look who's breaking custom. Because Jesus is on the way and Martha is leaving the house, breaking the rules to go and visit. And there's Mary that stays at home. Verse 21. Lord, Martha says to Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. But now I know that even God, even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she's told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Let's just pause there. Jesus is yet to die and rise again. And yet the Bible records only two people who identify Jesus to be the Christ in such a specific way before he dies and rises again. One is obviously Peter. In Matthew 16, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here we have the other person, Martha, the doer, the conference host. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Not Mary, the conference junkie. Not Mary, the present seeker, but Martha, the doer declares Jesus for who he is. Now Peter is then forever credited as being the foundation of the church. Martha is forever being 
uh, accepted as being the woman who should have made George more cheese sandwiches. Something to do with the culture, maybe. But only two people did it. Peter and Martha. And in case you're wondering, well, what does the presence loving, the awesome Mary say in this circumstance? Well, basically, when Mary finally leaves the house because Jesus asks for her, the Bible says she simply echoes the first bit of what Martha says. When Mary reached the place where Jesus saw, was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. No declaration of Jesus being the Christ. No declaration of faith that, that he's going to rise again. For the sake of time, we'll jump to verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Ever the practical. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, he called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped up with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. For someone's going to write a book called Unwrapping Lazarus. That's not the So at this time, we haven't got teaching. Wait, he's not saying, well, I know a good sermon about, you know, passing away at the right time. And, you know, this is a time for miracles. And Martha nails it. She makes an amazing faith declaration before Jesus done anything for her. While Lazarus is still officially, officially dead. She says, you're the Christ. Even now, God will do anything that you ask. And Jesus said, did I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Well, she must have believed because she did see the glory of God. And that takes me to point two. Your future relationship is not defined by your past choices. I asked at the beginning, who thought that the hero of this, the heroine of the story was Martha? Two people put their hands up out of the room. She made a mistake. But it doesn't define her. She made an idiot of herself. But that doesn't where, that's not where she stopped in her relationship. The thing is, very easy to pigeonhole people and jump to conclusions, isn't it? Most of you know I'm a GP. And when I go to collect a patient from the waiting room, from the moment I walk out to get them, I'm making conclusions. I watch how they get up. I watch how they walk. I watch to see if they're in pain. I look to see if they've got something in their hand. Have they got a hospital discharge summary? Have they got a Google printout? Have they, which is another 10 minutes of consultation. Have they come with family? Is that because they're frail? Or does it look like it's an intervention? Does everyone look angry? All these things I look at and judge before the person's ever set foot in my room. But we can be the same. If you want a prophetic word, 
if you're desperate to hear from God, would you not go up to the person you've decided is the most prophetic person, the most spiritual person in the church? Are you likely to choose the person who you know has publicly stuffed it up really huge the previous week? Or if someone you know has had a bit of a torrid past and made a few mistakes in their life, if they say, I've got a word for you, are you going to be there in eager expectation? Or are you going to go, really? We all jump to conclusions about people. Being pigeonholed. It's something even Paul faced. In Acts 9, 26, it said, When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Your future relationship is not defined by your past decisions. Imagine where we'd be if the disciples had their way. We'd have a much shorter Bible. Be a Barnabas, a bridge builder, not an assumption maker. Martha's original problem was what? The Bible said she drew away. But in John 11, we see her literally running to Jesus. And there's an amazing passage which I always think it's worth reminding yourself of, which is James 4.8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Your future relationship is not defined by your past choices. It's never too late to draw near and have an encounter, no matter what you've done. No matter what sin you've committed, no matter what mistakes, it's never too late to meet with Jesus. Draw back, and Jesus jumps right back in. Finally, let's just jump to uh, John 12, our last time of Jesus' meeting with Martha. John 12, 1 to 3. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was being given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So then we get a little moan from Judas, who basically was nicking the money. So he moans about the fact that a year's wages could have just given that to the poor. And then we get in verse 7, Jesus saying, leave her alone. Jesus replied, it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but will not always have me. Now this is an amazing story. And it's always held up to be an amazing story as much about Mary and her act of total love and total generosity. And quite right, it is, isn't it? It's astonishing, astonishing intimate moments. But I want to take you back to two words, two little words that I don't think I've ever heard anyone pick up on. Martha served. Martha diaconeo again. Martha undertook her ministry. Now it's right, absolutely right to celebrate what what Mary did. But consider this. 
Jesus was on his way to his death. He was six days away from celebrating the Passover, where he's arrested, tried, crucified, the entire sin of the world put on him, and his unbroken, interrupted, uninterrupted sense of the presence of his father finally ends for the first time in his life. So Jesus is invited to a meal in his honor, just before his moment of greatest testing and trial. And who is put front and center into his sight line? But Lazarus, one of his greatest miracles. Lazarus, at whose death Jesus declared, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Then Lazarus is raised to prove it. Lazarus is a visual reminder to Jesus of who he is, of who he's been called to to be, and what's going to happen to him, which is resurrection. He's a living reminder put front and center throughout the meal. And who facilitates that moment? Who brings it about? Who makes it special? Who makes sure that Jesus sees this reminder of a great declaration, a great move of God? Well, I would say it was the person who served them all. Martha, in her ministry, getting it right. Because this time is a time for fellowship. There's no teaching going on. There's no miracles going on. It's time to just be in the presence of God. And Martha is making it happen. Which takes me to my third point. Presence, not program. Now, if you've been at this church for any length of time, you'll know there's a bit of a mantra for us. Presence, not program. So in Luke 10, Jesus is teaching. In John 11, he's doing miracles. In John 12, he's fellowshipping. We need to be aware of what God is up to, what he wants to do. Now, wisdom is having a plan. If you're putting on a conference or putting on a service, it's a good idea to plan to have some worship. It's a good idea to have a speaker prepped and ready to go. But in Luke 10, Martha is locked into the plan of how you look after a guest and doesn't change it. In John 11, there is a plan set out, Shiva, on how you deal with death. And everyone changes the plan. In John 12, it's all about fellowship. No teaching, no miracles, just loving and presence. A bit like we had earlier on tonight. As a church, we face the challenge of trying to hear what God is doing. Sarah and I once went to a Heidi Baker conference um, some years ago, and people came from all around to listen to her speak about her ministry. And after a, a long period of worship, she just came on the stage and basically just had a love-in with God. She just was loving God, and he was clearly loving her back, and that's all she did. Most of the time, she was just breathing deeply and uttering the name of Jesus with deep love. There was no teaching whatsoever. And some people left unhappy. They were not chuffed at paying money and traveling a long way to hear her not speak. 
But Heidi knew what God wanted to do, and she changed the plan. Now, actually, I think that at this church, we're quite able to be in the presence and maybe push back the preaching a bit because the presence is so strong. I think we would do that. But I know of another church in Birmingham, a big church like ours, where the worship leader is not, is not unknown after a song or two to say, right, I'm going to stop there because I feel the presence of God for teaching. And I want to make room for the teacher. Imagine that. Finishing worship early so you could have more preaching time. Now that's a challenge for this church. I don't think we've ever done that. Presence, not program. So let me try and draw this together. Your work or your calling can draw you away from God. No, no matter how good you are, no matter how laudable it is, no matter, no matter how much you're called to do it. Are you too busy for God? Your future relationship is not defined by your past choices. Don't judge others by their past behavior. Be a bridge builder. Because the Bible said when Martha stopped drawing away and drew near, God drew near too. Presence, not program. Jesus was teaching at one point, miracle making another and fellowshiping another. Always, always be ready to say, what does God want me to do right now? What do we corporately think God wants us to do right now? I just want to end briefly with one point from John 12 again. Martha served. Exercise your own gift. Mary exercised the gift of love and presence. Martha exercised a gift of hospitality. It's really tempting to want to be someone else. Oh, I'd love to be Danny Silk. You get to fly all around the world, visit all these amazing churches. What a life. How exciting that must be. Actually, unless you're given grace for it, it's awful. I've been astonished that Danny Silk can fly from America to UK, which is the hardest way of doing it, land and then teach a whole evening conference the same day. I don't know how he does it. I literally do not know. I couldn't do it because I don't have the grace for it, but he does. Or maybe you've got faith envy. You know, oh, I really wish I could see the heavens. I could see angels. These people that see angels, you know. I remember someone said that God gave them a gift where they could look at someone and over their head, what was wrong with them was within an icon above their head. I was, I wanted that one. Imagine how easy my life would be. Oh, I can see your heart problems. It's so easy to want what someone else has got, isn't it? But we want you to be 100% you. We want you to do what you're called to do. I can't be Danny Silk. He's 100% called in the corner of the market on being Danny Silk. There's no room for me. Doing worship the Heidi Baker way has been completely nabbed by Heidi Baker. But there is a huge gaping hole that the Mike Von F bit of the universe gets to be filled by me. Romans 12.6 says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. 
If a man's gift is prophesying, then let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Don't ask to be Danny Silk. Don't want to be Heidi Baker. Be you to the fullest extent that you can. And if you are a Martha, if you are a doer, take a moment just to see what someone like that can achieve. What amazing faith she had. What amazing things she managed to bring together just by being who she was. I think being a doer is a much maligned job. So if you're a doer, stand up. If you know you're, you're a Martha of the world, and we are going to celebrate you. Take a bow, you Marthas. Because without you, we'd be lost. Nothing would get done. So I just want to end with that point. <laughs> be proud of who you are. Be proud of what you are. Be proud of who you're called to be. Do it to the best of your ability. Do it drawing near to God. In his presence, by his grace. Be all that you can be with him. And you will be such an amazing blessing for everyone around you. Amen.